0: Have a seat if you can, right? Amen. This it morning has morning been good so far, amen? It's been good. You know, before we get into the Word this morning, I just want to take a moment. I tell you, there's some exciting things going on in the church. We've got, like, families that are, like, pregnant with babies, and, you know, I love that because if you want to know how to grow to church, young people, you know, young married couples, you know, be fruitful and multiply, right? And so we've got some couples here that are, that are married, that are they're having babies, and are excited about that, and so we we'll celebrate that. Elijah and Kelsey are now engaged, and I think... I think on Facebook, the response was, it's about time, right? So, uh, you know, and I just want to say something. Many of you may already know this, uh, but today's a really big day in the life of our church, the Cross Life East. Today, exactly today, six years ago, Cross Life East launched. Six years ago today. And yeah, yeah, you should be excited about that. Yeah. Now, here's why you should be excited about that. And you can look this statistically up, but church plants and satellite churches don't usually make it past the first two years, most of them. So this is breaking all the rules. And so I want to take just a moment. Those of you, and I don't know how many there are, I know a few of you, but if there's anybody here today that you were part of Cross Life East from the launching point, I want you to stand up. And there's a few like that. A few like that, wow, wow. All right, you all stay standing, stay standing. Let's give them a hand real quickly. Now, stay standing. Now, listen, I want you, I want everybody to look at me. I want them to stay standing. Listen the folks that are standing right now that began and launched this campus have seen moments of great victory and have seen moments that were very, very difficult. But this group of people, and maybe others, but this group in particular, our group that said, we believe no matter the highs or the difficult times, we believe that God has planted us here for such a time as this to make a difference and to share the gospel to this part of our community. And it's because of these people's faithfulness that the rest of us get to be here this morning. So let's one more time, let's thank the Lord for these folks. You guys can have a seat. I know you all hated that, but so what, get over, right? Now I want to say this too, I believe our best days are ahead of us, amen? I believe our best days are ahead of us. God is doing so many great things and so many wonderful things and I believe that what lies ahead of us is even better than what has been behind us. God has planted us here, and we are going to reach our community, Cypress Lakes. Think about it. How many churches you know is planted right in the heart of a subdivision, of like 1,000 homes, and here we are planted. We are going to do all we can to reach Cypress Lakes, to reach Corner Lakes, and even go beyond that. And in the weeks ahead, you're going to be hearing how we plan to do that very thing, to infiltrate this community, to share the love and the hope of Christ. Our best days are yet to come. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I love you. I thank you. I believe with all of my heart that the best days of Cross Life East are ahead of us. God, we have such amazing folks here, people that are committed, that have bought in, that are faithful to give, to serve, and to do life with us. God, I pray with everything in me that you would give us the wisdom and the courage and the, the direction of how we can invade cypress lakes and corner lakes and the surrounding areas to share the gospel and to draw them in, to hear the only message that can change their eternity. Lord, give us that wisdom. God, I thank you for those who stood in the gap for those six years, who've been here through the great moments of victory and the t- kind of the difficult moments. But they believe from the very beginning that you planted us here and placed us here for a purpose. And God, I thank you for their faithfulness. God, I pray for what lies ahead of us, that you would prepare us, that you would go before us, and you would guide us that direction. And we know at the end of the day that everything we do and say at Cross Life East is about lifting the name of Jesus up. So God, we know that if we lift him up, you will draw all men. And so Lord, we're praying that you will build your church. And that you will draw men, and we will be faithful to lift up the name of Jesus. For it's in your precious and holy son's name we pray. And everybody shout it amen. Amen, amen. Well, if you have your Bible today, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 22. Today, we're going to kind of wrap up this idea of conflicted by grace. We're going to continue in Matthew. In fact, in a couple weeks, we're going to start a series called Endgame, where we're going to be talking about Matthew 25 or 24 and 25 where Jesus talks about the end and what's coming down the pike. And so we're going to spend four weeks there. And so some of you that love eschatology and the study of that, the end times, I mean, that's going to be right in your sweet spot. But today, we're going to kind of wrap up this idea of of conflicted by grace now up to this point here's what we've seen for the most part we have seen an epic tension between jesus and the religious leaders haven't we i mean over and over again week after week after week we see this epic tension between jesus and these religious leaders these religious leaders who have been indoctrinated that ultimately that if you want to get into heaven you have to perform They've been indoctrinated to a works salvation mentality. They believe that if you're going to stand before a holy God and be acceptable, you must perform. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus turns the kingdom upside down. And said, no, 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 it's not about performance. In fact, on your best day with your best performance, it's still not good enough to get you in. No, what it takes is receiving the grace of God. I go back to the very first story we talked about. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus said, what good deed must I do? And from that point all the way through this morning, we've seen Jesus change the way people are thinking to realize the way we get in is not by performing, it's by receiving his grace. Amen? Now, grace is the undeserved, unearned love and favor of God. You know, so we're all on the same playing field. Listen, there's not one of us in the room that are worthy and have earned, are so sweet and awesome that we deserve the grace of God. Do you know why God loves you? Just what? Because he does. There's nothing you've done. Well, Doug, I'm pretty good. No, you're not. The Bible says no one's good. No what? Not one. Well, Doug, I've been so bad and there's no way God can love me. Yes, he can. I can show you story after story after story in the Bible where people that rebelled against God and walked away from God and were Paul, I mean, Paul, before his name was changed, he was killing Christians. And Jesus changed his life. It's all about grace. Now, as we come into the passage today, here's what we're going to find out. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. I love the name Sadducees because I think that's why they're sad. You see, right? That's a bad pastor joke. Here we go. So anyway, so some of you will have to go home and think about that one. So anyway, the Pharisees were kind of the the religious arm that was the teaching, the doctrine. And then you had the Sadducees that were more the political side of Judaism. But they both worked together. And they both come at Jesus, and they asked Jesus three questions. Now, why did they ask him three questions? Because of what they always were trying to do. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to cause him to fall because if they could ask a question that he couldn't answer sufficiently, then that somehow would mean that he wasn't the Messiah, that he was a pretender, and that he pulled the wool over everybody else's eyes and that they could be there and go, look, see, we told you so. So they come at Jesus with three questions. Now here's what I want us to do today as we wrap this series up. I want us to look at the three questions and we're going to cover some serious territory today so you're going to have to listen really, really fast, all right? So we're going to look at the three questions and we're going to look at Jesus' response. And at the very end, Jesus does something he doesn't rarely does. He flips the script. And he asks them three questions. And the reason he asks those questions are crucially important for us today. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 22, here's the very first question. Verse 15 says this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God. Wink, wink, right? Truthfully. And you do not care about anyone else's opinion, for you are not swayed by the appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I love this. I love this. Look how they approach Jesus. Hey, we know you teach God's word. And you do it so truthfully. And we know you're not swayed by anybody's opinion. So just tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes? Now, do you think there was an honest question in that at all? Or did I kind of skew how you probably read that, right? Why? Because these guys were trying to trick Jesus. There was nothing about them that thought he was teaching the way of God. They thought he was of the devil. You could just go back a few chapters. They called him Beelzebub at one time, right? They thought Jesus was not from God. So this question was to entangle him, and the question is this, and I want you to write it down. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Now, here's the reason. If you think about it, why would they ask that question? Why would they start with taxes? Because for the the religious figures of the day, they truly believed that the coming Messiah was going to come and set up his earthly kingdom and was going to seek to overthrow Rome. What better way to overthrow a government than for millions and millions and millions of Israelites, Jewish people, not to pay what? Taxes, right? Because here's the thing. If Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes, then they would go, well, he's not come to overthrow Rome, and so he can't be the Messiah. But if Jesus says no... It's not lawful to pay taxes, and we shouldn't pay taxes. At that point, you'd think they would go, well, then maybe he's the Messiah. No, you think about it. In any way he would have shaped this answer, they were going to do all they could do to trick him. So if he says, no, it's not lawful, now he's a threat to Rome, and they can can deal with Rome and say, Rome, you kill him, because now he's your threat. At the bottom line is this. No matter how Jesus answers the question, for them, it's not going to be sufficient. But I want you to look how Jesus profoundly answers the question. Look what he says in verse 18. 18 through 22, he says this, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that that are God. And when they heard this, they marveled and they left him and they went away. Now listen to Jesus' response. There's three things he says. First of all, he calls them what? What did Jesus call them? Hypocrites. Now why would he call them hypocrites? Because think about it. Here's the religious leaders, Pharisees, teachers of the Bible, the Old Testament. They were the ones that were open the scrolls and teach this stuff here's these guys that gave all the idea that they were godly and they were walking close with god but at the end of the day there was nothing spiritual about them in fact they were evil go back to the temple right why did jesus flip over the tables it wasn't because there was no money change in the temple not supposed to be there it's because the priest and the high priest were profiting off of the people they were evil So Jesus calls them hypocrites because they're putting this facade that they are good and godly and Jesus calling them out and said, that's not your heart at all. You're wicked and you're evil. Now think about that. Are you offended if you're a Pharisee and Jesus says that to you? Yes. And it gets worse in a moment. He calls them hypocrites. And then he says this, hey, bring me a coin. Bring me a denarius. And so they bring him one and on the denarius, there was a picture. He said, whose inscription, whose picture it is? Well, it's a Roman coin, and in the front of the coin would have been a picture of Tiberius Caesar. That was who was on the Roman coin. And the inscription would have read this, Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. The point was this. We live in a Roman world, guys. We have Roman currency. Caesar's on the currency. The inscription that, you know, that Caesar Augustus, the son Of divine Augustus. This is a Roman coin. Guess what? The Roman is, Rome is ruling. And so if we have their coin and their currency, it only makes sense that we do what? Pay taxes to Rome, right? And then Jesus says this. I love this. And so here's his answer. Render or pay. So you can either translation. Render or pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But he doesn't stop there, right? He goes on to say, and render to God, what? what? The things that belong to God. Now, I love what Jesus does here because he basically says this. Listen, you have an obligation. We live under Roman rule with Roman currency. they are Roman bills. You're part of that. We have an obligation to pay Roman taxes. But Jesus, it's not fair. doesn't matter. It's never been fair. And by the way, here's the really good news. It's never going to be fair. It doesn't matter. You're under the reign and rule, so you have to pay taxes. But only, don't only render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, you need to give to God what belongs to God. Here's Jesus' point. You're under obligation. You're under obligation to pay your taxes, but you're also under obligation to give to the Lord what belongs to the Lord. Now, what belongs to the Lord in what Jesus is talking about? What's he talking about? He's talking about the tithe, right? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, taxes. And give to the Lord what belongs to the Lord. Tithe. And so Jesus really kind of comes at this question and goes, Hey, it's not just about paying taxes to Caesar. You need to make sure you're giving God what belongs to God. So the question is, Is it lawful to pay taxes? And here's Jesus' answer Yes. Now, we hate that, don't we? I mean, we hate that. I mean, some of you, like, you work, like, so hard when tax time comes, and you should take every deduction you can get. I'm not saying that. But we work hard. We like to try to create loopholes. I mean, we want to get, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, we live in a country that has amenities that no other country has and we pay for it with taxes, and I'm not saying you shouldn't take every exemption the government gives you, but at the end of the day, we pay taxes for a reason, and I'm not saying that when you put that check in the mail, it shouldn't hurt sometimes, but at the end of the day, give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but make sure you're giving to God what belongs to God. Pay our taxes, and make sure we give our tithes to the Lord. Amen? Some of you are like, I don't know about that, but it means, right? So Jesus says, yes, it is. And so they're so, muffled, they're so baffled, they failed, and they walk away, and then they come with another question. Look at me in verse 23. Here's the other question he asked in verse 23 through 28. The same day the Sadducees, that's the other arm, the political arm, came to Jesus, came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question, say, Teacher, Moses said, if any man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up her offspring as his brother, Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second third, down to the seventh. After all of them, the women died. And in the the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, your mind's like, what in the world? Listen, here's the question they're asking. In the resurrection, how does marriage work? How does this thing work? Now, I know many times we don't think about this stuff. You know, we think about, you know, you might have still that white picket fence and your beautiful family living there and just kind of, you know, skipping up and down the streets of gold and all I don't know what imagery you have, but Jesus says something very powerful because here's the interesting thing. They're trying to trick him again. Here's a group of people, the political arm of Judaism, that doesn't even believe in the resurrection. But they grab an Old Testament custom, and they try to trick Jesus. Here's the Old Testament custom. If a, if a man and wife, they're married, and the husband dies, and she has, he has a brother that's not married, it was the job of the brother to come along and to marry the widow. And if they had kids together, they were to raise the child as the dead husband's son. Why? Because the name would keep going. Like, well, they had the same last name. That's not how it worked back then, right? But to keep the lineage and the name going. And then if that husband died, another brother who wasn't Uh, married he would have to step in and so forth and so on that's an old testament custom and then they come to jesus and they bring the most absurd scenario possible it wasn't like hey a brother died and another brother married who's going to be married to it's like no no he had seven brothers right i mean it's like the most extreme example you can give he had seven brothers, and they all just kept kicking the bucket. I mean, they all married her, and they just kept dying, and they just kept dying, they just kept dying, they just kept. And finally, by the seventh one, finally she's dead. Now Jesus, so in the in the resurrection, you're like, are you, you get the absurdity of the question? So in the resurrection, Jesus, she's been married to all seven. They've all had intimate relations. Whose wife will she be? He'll never get this one right. And I love Jesus' response. Maybe my second favorite response in all the Bible that Jesus gives. Look with me how he responds in verse 29. He said, you are wrong because you do not know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In fact, that translation could be translated, you are dead wrong. You're not just wrong. You're wrong, wrong. I mean, the question that you're coming at me with doesn't even make sense. And the question you're asking isn't even relevant to the resurrection. And notice what Jesus says. You're wrong, and you don't even know the scriptures, and you don't even know the power of God. Now, think about it. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to a bum on the street. He's talking to the Sadducees, the political arm of Judaism who knew the law, who were trained in the law, they understood the law. And he looks them right in the eye and goes, you're wrong. You don't even believe in this stuff, and you're wrong. Your assessment is wrong. Here's why it's wrong. You don't know the Scriptures, and you think you do. And you don't know the power of God, and you think you do. Now, if you're a Sadducee, are you offended by what Jesus just said to you? Yeah, because you've trained. You know the Scriptures. You've trained. You understand that. And the power of God, listen, Jesus, I gave my life up for this. I'm a Sadducee, I'm a religious leader. I've given up my whole career. I pursued this way back as a kid. I'm here today because of a lifelong pursuit. Don't tell me I don't know the power of God. And so when Jesus tells them they are wrong because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God, this would have been offensive. But Jesus doesn't stop. He keeps going and he talks about their ignorance Related to God's power, look at me in verse 30. He says, for in the resurrection there is neither Mary nor given in marriage, but all are like angels in heaven. He says, listen, guys, marriage is a beautiful institution, but it's an earthly institution. See, the power of God in the resurrection is this, that he changes us. And the power of the resurrection is that when we are resurrected, we will be changed how are we changed? Jesus says they'll become like angels. Now, that doesn't mean when someone dies, don't tell your kids, are they're, they're just a little angel. No, they're not. They've been created in the mago dei, the image of God. They have more value than angels have in some regard. They are created in the light. So they're not angels. He says they'll be like angels, meaning that when we have resurrection, when we experience the resurrection, we will be glorified and we'll be equipped for eternity. The Apostle Paul says this way. When the resurrection comes, that which is mortal will put on immortality. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That we, when the resurrection happens, we will be like angels, we will be glorified, and we will be equipped for all eternity. And the intimacy that we long for won't be found in an earthly relationship or a marriage. It will be found being in the presence of our Savior. You guys don't know the power of God. See, the power of God, when the resurrection comes, it changes us. You're thinking like earthly people. But it changes us and equips us for eternity. And then he goes on. He talks about their ignorance related to Scripture, the ignorance of Scripture. Look with me in verse 31, 32. I love this. He says this, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, Scripture, what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of who? The living. The living. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Now, does anybody know who God was talking to in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6? He's talking to Moses. And he says, they heard the cries of God's people, and God went to Moses, and Moses, I'm calling you out. And God told Moses on that day, chapter 3, verse 6, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. Now, we know that I am statement is important because it's the name of God, right? But there's more to it than that. See, when he went to Moses, here's a real, here, just think about this. When he went to Moses, guess what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, right? Are you with me? They already passed away. So if you want to be grammatically correct, God should have said, hey, Moses, I was the God of Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob, because they're no longer with us. So the fact that God says, listen, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he's saying is, though you thought they were dead, guess what? They're alive. See, what Jesus is saying here is, you don't know the Scriptures. You say you know the Scriptures, but even back in Exodus, God told Moses, I am the God, I am the God, I am, meaning those people you thought were dead, they're not dead, they're alive. What a beautiful picture of the resurrection that the dead in Christ one day are going to what? They're going to rise, right? And so Jesus confronts these guys and go, listen, you are so wrong. You don't know Scripture, and you don't know the power of God. And see, he's saying that the resurrection is not about being married. It's about being in the presence of God. And so look what happens here. And when the crowd heard this, they were astonished by his teaching. So the Pharisees come at him, disappointed, failed, the Sadducees come at him with a very bizarre question, and they failed. And then there's a third question, finally. Here it is. In chapter uh, 22, verse 34 through 40, it says this. But then the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him this question to put him to the test. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So the Pharisees come back. And now they're like, They're like this venomous question. They really want to put, they want to nail Jesus to the wall. And so they ask him this question Okay, Jesus. You seem to answer everything we could throw at you. Here's the big one. You ready? Here it is. There are ten commandments, and they're all so important. That didn't count the rest of the ones in the Old Testament, but there's ten that are superior to all. What's the greatest one? Tell me what's the best one. Because if Jesus picks one, guess what? That means he's minimalizing the other nine, right? If he picks one over the other, he's minimalizing the other nine. And if he does that, then he can't be from God. So then Jesus responds to them. How? Here's the greatest commandment. You're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. In other words, life hinges on loving God first. Right? Now, he says your heart. You know what your heart is? That's the core of who you are. In fact, the heart literally translates your bowels. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's like the gut right in the core of who you are. Do you know why he says that? Love him with all your heart. Because that's in in your heart, isn't that where faith happens? Isn't that where conviction happens? He said, love him with your heart. He said, love him with your soul. Soul Soul's a reference to our emotions and our desires, to desire him. And he says, love him with your mind, meaning our understanding and the way we think. He said, I want you to love God. And Mark adds strength. He said, I want you to love God with everything that you are. And then he said, secondly, Love your neighbor as yourself. So love God first, which encompasses half the the commandments, and then love your neighbor as yourself, which encompasses the rest of the commandments. And we're to love our neighbors without boundaries. We're to love our neighbors by serving them. And we're to love our neighbors by sharing the gospel. Jesus says, I know the question you're asking me, but let me just say something to you. Everything the prophets of the Old Testament said and everything you know hinges on two things. You ready? Love God and what? Love people. Everything hinges on that. Now, how do you think they responded to that? Defeated, right? And defeated and struggling and they failed for a third time. And now something happens here as we close. I want you to notice with me. Look with me in verse 41 through 46. Jesus switched the narrative and he asked the questions. Listen to what it says in verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I love it. Don't you love it? Jesus took all these questions. And he just kind of fought back, and then he, he switches the script, and he asks three questions. He asks them this, first of all, whose son is the Christ? And they answer correctly. It's, in other words, what line is this Messiah going to come from? The line of David, right? He knows that. They know that. Unfortunately, they forgot that Jesus was from the line of David. And then he asks them this question. says, well, why does David call him Lord? If he's going to come from the line of David, why does David himself call the Messiah to come Lord? I do not. Why does he call him Savior? Well, it's because David understood that the one that was coming in his line was going to be the Messiah of the world. And then he asked him, "So why did the Lord? Why? So why can the Lord be called David's son? Why? Why? Why does he call him son? It's because he David understood that Jesus was not only the son of David, but he was the son of who? Of God, right? Now here's what's interesting. Why would Jesus ask these series of questions? And I have two answers for you. I think first of all, he asked these questions because he wanted to lead the religious leaders to the conclusion of who he was. I am from the line of David. I am the Messiah that David talked about. I am not just the son of man. I am the son of God. He wanted to, these religious leaders had inundated him with questions. He's like, listen, I want to lead you to the conclusion you need to come to, and that is that I am the Messiah. It's me. And I think another reason that Jesus asked a series of questions is because he wanted these people to know, at some point in your journey, you got to stop asking questions. At some point in your journey, you have to put your money where your mouth is. At some point in your journey, you've got to quit inundating me with questions, and you've got to decide for yourself, who do you think that I am? See, do you remember Matthew 16 when Jesus confronted the disciples and says, who does the world say that I am? And like, well, they think you're this and that. And they're like, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. It was a moment where Jesus was like, listen, forget everything that's going on out there. Who do you say that I am, disciples? And they responded, this is that moment for the religious leaders. Hey, it's time to put the questions aside. And you've got to make a decision. Who do you think that I am? It's interesting, for three years, the religious leaders tried to connect the dots of the identity of Jesus, and in one final moment with them, Jesus connects the dots for them. I am that Messiah. I am the one that David was talking about, but you have to make a decision, who do you say that I am? Now, I want you all to look at me just for a moment. There may be somewhere in the room that's just like these religious leaders. Hey, questions are good, right? We all ask questions, don't we? Hey, listen, I've got questions. The more I know about God's word and the more I learn, the more questions I have. Anybody else like that? Man, I've got them. But there's some of you, man, you're just inundating God with questions. And you're asking questions like, well, God, well, if you love people, why do bad things happen? Or God, if this happens, why? Do and we've got all these questions. And listen, there's a point in everybody's journey where asking questions are great. But then there's a point where everybody's got to stop asking questions and we have to make a decision, who do we think Jesus is? I mean, you can ask questions all the way to the grave. But at some point, you've got to stop and go, who do I think Jesus is? And maybe there's somebody here today that needs to stop asking questions and decide for the first time in your life, who do you say that Jesus really is? Maybe there's somebody here today that I pray that needs to receive his grace this morning. And if that's you, in just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. But if you're like me and you're a believer here today and you look at this passage and you go, okay, what, what, what in the world does this passage have to do with me? What in the world can I take away from this passage that will compel me as I move forward? Well, listen, if you're, if you're like me, you have received God's grace. There's been a moment where you did pause. I was nine years old. You may have had a different age where you paused and you said the questions have got to stop. And today I'm going to decide who I say Jesus is. And I say that he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and that he is the savior of the world. And I want him to be mine. And many of you made that decision. So what is the takeaway from you today? Two things. Number one, gratitude. I know we talked about it a few weeks ago, but I just can't get over it. Patrick said something last week that's kind of wrecked me all week long because he was right. He said, you know, sometimes when you think about the love of God, sometimes we just take it for granted. Sometimes we become numb to it. you know what Scripture says? That God lavished his love on us. Do you know what lavished means? It doesn't mean a sprinkling. It doesn't mean like a little dousing. It means a pouring out of. And I don't know about you, but look at me. I don't know about you, but I'm not worthy of that. Are you? I'm not worthy of the love that he shows me. I know the wretchedness of my own heart. I know the sinfulness of my own life. I know where I stand. I know the failures of my life. I'm not worthy of any of that, but he gives it to me anyway. And so what can I do in response? What can I do in response to the grace that I received? Be thankful. Have gratitude in my heart. But there's a second response I think for us today, and it's this. It's that we would be motivated to share this grace with other people. Do we all agree that we have neighbors, family, friends, coworkers, people that we run across all the time that are lost as a duck in the desert and do not have salvation and they need this grace? Can we all agree that we know people like that? Amen? Last week, we talked about a 261 challenge. I mean, I'm mean, i proud to tell you, almost 60 of you said, hey, I'm, I'm on, I'm in, I'm doing it. And maybe you weren't here last week, but here was the challenge. Then the right side, the left side of the card, that you would sign your name saying, I'm committing to 261. I'm committing for the next six weeks to invest in two people with one purpose, and that's to share the gospel. Have a gospel conversation with them. And on this side, you were going to write down the two names, and you were going to tear it apart. And you were going to leave your name here, and I'm just going to pray for you. I prayed for all 54 of you this week and sent you an email to remind you of that. And you were going to take this home and be praying over God giving you opportunity to share the gospel. See, what is one of the takeaways for us today? If you've already taken the 261 challenge, a renewed sense of motivation that I've got to make an effort. Because many of you, if you're like me sometimes, you went home last week and you went, yes, I'm going to pray for these people, I'm going to pray for a situation, and I really want to do this. And today you walk through the door go, oh, I forgot all about it. Right? Today would be a motivation to say, today, I'm doing something about it. If you didn't take the challenge today, you can. There's cards up or you can take it in just a moment. Now, what I want us to do this morning, especially if you're a believer today, as a means to encourage us, we're going to come to the Lord's table. What better way to think about the sacrifice made for us than coming to the Lord's table, right? What better way for us to express our gratitude for the Lord for sacrifice than coming to the Lord's table? What better way to be motivated to take the grace that I've received and be motivated to go share with other people than to think about and come to the Lord's table? So if you're listening to me, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, well, Doug, what if I'm not a member of the church? I don't care. If you know that you belong to him, you're a child of the Most High God, and in just a moment, you're invited to come to the Lord's table, to take the bread and to dip it into the juice. And as you take it, listen, as you take it, may you express your gratitude for the grace that you've received. But as you take the Lord's Supper, may it also be your commitment to go and to share that grace with somebody else. Amen? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do with me just for a moment. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye to be closed right now. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that before we take the supper, we're to remember and we're to examine our hearts. And so right now, if you're a believer, that's all I want you to do. I want you to remember how much he loved you. That he sent his only son to die on a cross. He who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. Would you remember that and would you examine your own heart? Would you examine your motivation to go share that grace with somebody else? And so believers, you just take a moment. I'm going to keep talking to others, but as believers, you just take a moment and remember and examine. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, as their believers are doing their business with God and you've, and you've never trusted Christ, but you know today, as sure as you're sitting here, that you need to receive the grace that I've talked about today. You know that you've sinned and you've failed On your best day, you're not acceptable to God, but you want to receive His grace, experience His forgiveness, and know that one day when you die, you have the hope of heaven. If today you need to receive that grace, I'm going to ask you, nobody's looking around. Just slip your hand up and put it right back down. Nobody's looking. Slide it up and just put it right back down. Amen. Just put it up right back down. Just put it right back down. There you go. If you're one of those, would you just pray and say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I need forgiveness of my sin and I know that I cannot be good enough to enter your heaven so today I surrender my life and I invite Jesus in to be my Lord and my Savior and if you'll do that the Bible says if you confess the Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved and if you just made that decision there's a welcome card in your worship folder Please fill that out in the backside. Say today, I gave my life to Christ. Put it in the offering basket when it passes so I can communicate with you and talk to you and celebrate with you. So if you need to do that today, would you please do it? Let's all stand together as I pray. Let's all stand. Father God, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for the passages we went through. I thank you for that moment where it's like Jesus kept answering the questions, but it led the religious leaders to the point where it's like, man, you got to stop asking and you got to make a decision. And God, maybe there's some people in the room today that need to do that. I pray they would. But God, right now, I also pray for believers. I pray that we would respond today, that we would respond by coming to the table, the Lord's Supper, and taking the bread and dipping the juice, reminding us of the body that was beaten and the blood that was shed as you demonstrated your grace to people who are unlovely, people who are wretched, people who are rebellious. Lord, we don't deserve it, but that's the beauty of grace. You love us just because. And God, I pray for believers that as we take the supper, our hearts will be filled with gratitude. But also pray that our hearts will be motivated to share this grace with others. God, would you just move in this moment would your Holy Spirit just fall fresh in this place and guide us, and may we be faithful to respond. We love you, Lord. It's your wonderful name we pray. Amen, amen. As the Lord leads you, we're going to uncover the elements, Randy and Ron, if you go ahead and do that for me. sign up here and uncover them. As the Lord leads you. We invite you to come take the supper. If you want to come pray, the altar's open. If you didn't take the challenge and you want to take it up and write it down, to take the, please do. And if you've given your life to Christ, please fill out that card or come talk to me. I'm right there. Listen, it's an eternal decision you made today. Let's celebrate that. So as the Lord leads all of us, may we be faithful to respond.